HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Ben to Table, a monthly food subscription service for folks who want to cook with the best pantry ingredients on the planet. Learn more at bentotable.com and use the code HRN at checkout to get $20 off your first month. This episode of Meet and 3 is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. I've been back at school in St. Louis for a week, and let me tell you, things are an absolute mess here. Last weekend, an unnamed fraternity hosted a party with about 50 people. Next thing you know, all over the off-campus neighborhood, people are testing positive, mostly from contact with the partygoers. One of my good friends was supposed to move into her apartment this past week, but now, because her roommates were exposed, she has been uprooted from her home and has been forced to couch surf something that's uncomfortable and increasing her risk of exposure. She has been physically displaced by the irresponsibility of her roommates, and her story is far from unique. To college students, if you want to stay at school and not be forced to go home in a few weeks, I urge you to please reconsider your need to be social. If you must, gather outside in small groups with masks on and distance kept. Being responsible now will pay out in the future. It's September, and as the days get shorter and temperatures cooler, it's time to go back to school. But this year, the first day at school looks a lot different. Whether learning is totally virtual or incorporates in-person classes with students and teachers wearing masks and even separated by barriers, from daycares to universities, every school is operating under a different model, and that includes their plans for how students will eat. Today, we're reporting from cafeterias, taking a look at how schools can support students who require subsidized lunch, and even exploring some tips for teaching young kids about nutrition from the comfort of their homes. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meet and Three. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meet and Three. First, we join Tosh Kimmel in conversation with Carmen Lucich about her experience feeding students and families during the COVID-19 pandemic. As schools across the country discuss reopening, the conversation has centered around fears of superspreading. However, the fight to get kids back into school is an incredibly multifaceted and nuanced issue. For many children, school nurtures more than just their intellect. It offers them a safe place to spend the day 
and more importantly, a hot meal which may not be guaranteed at home. Carmen Lusich, a lunch lady at a preschool in Northern California, is serving this population of food insecure children. That is a factor that's very alarming about this is I'm seeing people, you know, advocate for like going back into school. And a main reason is, you know, food insecurity, like kids go to school and they get fed. And I'm just, that's a whole other thing of like, fight for kids to be fed versus like going to school. As a lunch lady, Carmen relies on government funding through the Child and Adult Care Food Program to provide weekly meals to students and their families. But without in-person learning, some of the over 6.1 million served daily through this program may go hungry. I think the reason we are in session physically is because preschool, when boiled down to what it is, is like childcare, and that's necessary. A lot of the people we serve are essential workers, so it was about who needs to get back to work. Normally we serve 28 kids, but we are only allowed to have 12. The other kids are doing like distance learning. We also do a program where one day a week the food bank will come and we make boxes for the families to bring home, like milk, eggs, some sort of meat, bread, and produce, different types of produce, and then also like whatever the food bank has at that time. Um, So like different kinds of snacks I've seen, granola bars, that kind of stuff. Although the focus of these programs is often on the children being served, behind these food-insecure children is usually an entire family. While these issues have always existed, COVID's far-reaching effects on the working class have shown a spotlight on the sheer magnitude of the problem. When I asked Carmen her closing words, her only message was, Protect the kids. That's all I gotta say. Protect the kids. We go now from California to Alabama. States that are handling reopening and back to school very differently. However, both are working to address the needs of students and families that are food insecure. Here's Kat Johnson on how schools and other organizations are working to provide up-to-date information on food access and lunch programs. In the state of Alabama, there are lots of places where people can access food, either for free or with SNAP benefits. However, Often these resources are geared only towards kids, like school lunch programs, or maybe towards seniors. Some are only open certain days and hours, like farmers markets and food banks. There are very few places where you can find all this information in one place, but a group of people is working to change that. My name is Mallory Goodman. I am currently a student in the Public Administration and Public Policy PhD program at Auburn University and Auburn University Montgomery. And I work as a research assistant for the Hunger Solutions Institute at Auburn. Mallory is the program director of the County Food Guide Project launched by In Childhood Hunger in Alabama over the summer. We had noticed at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic that while there was some information about where families could access food throughout the state, it was spread out on many different websites. Mallory and her team organized a group of volunteers who spend each week painstakingly updating a county-by-county resource guide, from food banks and pantries to grocery stores that accept SNAP. When we first developed the project, it was difficult sometimes to... Um, 
find some of the the resources and the data that we needed to include as part of this uh, database. I think we were not um, we were not aware of just how much information was going to be put into this this database for um, for the state of Alabama. As they launched the database, the 2020 school year was already looming. That meant all the information they'd compiled about summer feeding programs across Alabama was about to change. So they got to work making those updates. So um, we want people to take that into consideration when they look through our child nutrition resources, for example, that these are left over from the summer feeding program and we are making a transition currently into... um, what school districts are doing and what perhaps nonprofit organizations or other sponsored sites are doing to augment those services that are being provided by schools. So what are schools in Alabama doing to ensure kids get meals? For one example, let's take a look at the school system that I attended. Eufaula City Schools announced on July 30th that they would be 100% remote for the first nine weeks. On August 20th, they released their fall meal information. Sack lunches would be distributed by school buses at seven drop-off points throughout town, and they're available for pickup at three schools. In Eufaula, any student can receive a delivered sack lunch for free, regardless of their income status. They just have to verify that they're enrolled in school. And Mallory said that she'd seen the solution work well in rural areas, not just in Alabama, but across the nation. I do know that just even nationwide, as I've participated in some webinars, that that's not an uncommon way of trying to address the need within a school district, especially um, when you have children who are in more rural areas, right, where they may not be able to access, you know, a, a common pickup point, right? Parents parents are working, parents may not have access to transportation. And so um, I've definitely seen that be the case more in rural areas. So as I was reporting this story, there was a big announcement from the USDA that impacted school lunch this fall. On August 31st, they extended waivers from the spring that allow for several key flexibilities. Summer meal programs can continue serving free food. Schools can serve meals to anyone under 18, regardless of their enrollment status. Lunches can be served outside of normal settings and times. And parents can pick up meals for their children. All of these flexibilities will make delivering meals by bus much easier for school systems. It's hard to overstate the importance of school lunch. Childhood hunger and food insecurity are significant problems in Alabama. In 2019, more than 55% of Alabama students were eligible for free or reduced lunch. But like so many things, COVID-19 has reframed and illuminated this issue even for people like Mallory who work around hunger relief. I know that before I was working for the Hunger Solutions Institute, I really didn't realize how many families um, throughout our nation and and especially throughout our state are just struggling to make ends meet and, and struggling with this. It's something that can be very hidden. If you live in Alabama and need to access food resources for your county, you can go to aub.ie slash foodguides. That link is also in our show notes. And also, anyone who's interested in becoming a volunteer for this project, there's also a little button to click on to express interest and to contact us and reach out to be included as a volunteer on that same page. 
Thanks so much to Mallory Goodman for giving us an inside look into how Alabama is going back to school this fall and how her team at End Childhood Hunger in Alabama is making sure that every student and family has the food resources they need. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Bend to Table, a monthly food subscription service for folks who want to cook with the best pantry ingredients on the planet, founded by Ben Simon. After working for President Obama, Ben spent five years traveling the world for Greenpeace, campaigning on climate change and sustainable agriculture. He always kept his eye out for delicious food to bring back home. Now, with everyone's travels on hold and home cooking more important than ever, Ben's subscriptions provide a way for home cooks to experience different food cultures each month and put together nourishing, delicious meals with the best pantry items on the planet. With Taste the World, get a new shipment of different best-in-class ingredients to explore a new cuisine each month, along with tips and tricks to help out. We're talking delicious single-origin spices, cold-pressed olive oil, beautiful sauces, and lots of ways to use them. There's also an essential subscription which gets you a delicious assortment of heirloom, hard-to-find recipe staples. You can also get both each month with the full Ben to Table box subscription. Learn more at bentotable.com and use the code HRN at checkout to get $20 off your first month, and Ben to Table will donate $10 to HRN. This episode of Meet and 3 is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee, representing 75% of U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry production. With over 100 articles published in health journals stating the vast health benefits of Michigan's superfruit, it's best to choose the cherry with more. U.S. Montmorency Tart Cherries. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency Tart Cherry at ChooseCherries.com. Welcome back to Meet and 3. In our next story, we tune into a recent interview on HRN's Tech Bytes. Host Jennifer Leuzzi talks to Julia Olianju about her educational platform, YS Cooks, that may come in handy as many young people remain stuck at home this fall. The app and website are designed to inspire young eaters to make healthier and more sustainable dining choices by providing recipes, games, and other activities that teach them about nutrition, food science, history, and more. I know you have recipes and people are cooking together, and it's an opportunity also for families to cook together to make meals. So did it become a part of, you know, lunchtime or dinner time, or what was the what was the change because school became, you know, a time at home on computers? Our mission is changing to focus more on connecting families together. Not just um, we want to educate them, but we also want to help them create a bond with their parents, come together, have fun together, learn together. Do you find that parents are, do these messages resonate more with parents now yes. uh, as a way to sort of bridge maybe a conversation gap between, you know, something like environmental issues with, you know, small kids or food safety with kids as a as a framework to talk about things that maybe might not be so easy to discuss with like a seven-year-old if you're presenting something that is um, complicated or maybe not the most exciting topic, but you present it very engaging and exciting way, kids will want to learn about it. I remember getting a document uh, that was prepared by uh, a nutritionist on 
on the on God health. And it had so many colorful images and it had um, superheroes and it had uh, villains. So it, she did it in such an engaging way that you will almost forget we're talking about gut health. So she was saying that, you know, in your in your tummy, she actually used a tummy and she, she said, your tummy, you have some bacteria there, millions of them. Some of them are superheroes. Some of them so like uh, good bacteria, evil good bacteria. bacteria. Evil, yes. And she, she, it was really beautiful. So the goal is to um, make um, education, um, make, make nutrition education something exciting, something fun. But that's not the only thing. One thing we found out is when you talk about healthy food, some people tune off because they think when you talk about healthy food, you're talking about tasteless food, you're talking about um, 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 people. Not your favorite food. Yes, but it's not <laughs> the case at all. It's pretty much saying, how can I make this um, food, how can I make this food that I really enjoy even more nourishing and, and tastier. So, for instance, I remember one of the kids shared a picture of pizza and said, you know, I like pizza, but how can I make it better for me? And somebody said, why didn't you have less cheese? Why didn't you use um, this kind of, um, 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 what's it called? Why don't you use kind of toppings? And people started talking and the conversation thread grew from that because everybody loves pizza. So it's not saying don't eat um, this, don't eat what you love. It's saying, how can you make food work for you. To learn more about YS Cooks, tune in to episode 215 of Tech Bites wherever you get your podcasts. In our final story, Emily Kunkel takes us to the world of higher education to see how one university is preparing for the start of the new school year. It is quiet. We're we're used to this time of the year being of high energy and being really vibrant uh, with large tents on um, Alexander Beach, uh, welcoming students. Smitha Hanif is the Assistant Vice President for University Services at Princeton University. In her role, she oversees all food spaces on campus, such as dining halls, faculty cafeterias, and event catering. Smitha first became aware of COVID-19 back in late January. From about end of January, um, we would have uh, frequent calls. There was a there was a core committee that was formed, and we would have calls where we would be briefed about uh, what COVID was um, and what its impact might possibly be. Finally, in March, along with hundreds of other colleges around the country, Princeton sent students home. International students and others who were unable to return home were allowed to remain on campus. The question then became, how will the university feed this population while limiting the spread of COVID-19? In, in This was around March timeframe, was our first dining transition. Transition from self-serve to served only. Transition from in-room dining to takeout only. Strict social distancing rules were put in place. Students were given prepared boxed meals and asked to return to their rooms to eat. The campus center and other students' dorm rooms were off-limits. Smitha and her team consulted a number of groups to prepare for the upcoming school year. Public health organizations, food industry specialists, state guidelines, and other college campuses within their network were all consulted. In July, Princeton President Christopher L. Eisgruber announced that students would return to campus in shifts and classes would remain largely online. Freshmen and juniors would return to campus in the fall, while sophomores and seniors would return in the spring. 
A month later, this decision was reversed. It was announced that only students with special accommodations, such as those conducting lab research, would be allowed on campus in the fall. Even with limited numbers of students on campus, Smithaw and her team have put a number of precautions into place. Sensors have been installed at dining hall entrances and exits to provide real-time anonymous headcounts to the staff. We plan to begin with outdoor dining and slowly bring in indoor dining at a point that we will be ready. For our students, we have contactless dining. And by contactless dining, what I mean by that is when students come into the dining hall, they swipe themselves in. And while maintaining social distancing, there is a circulation pathway that has been created from entry to exit. It's single in a, in a single direction. And as students walk through the dining hall, it, it is set up in such a way that they can maintain social distancing amongst themselves, and it would be contactless between our staff and to the student. And finally, we've installed large tent structure where students can sit down and eat while social distancing. This coming fall, only two out of the six residential dining halls will be open. With fewer students on campus comes the question of staff employment. While staff hours have been cut, Princeton has been able to maintain full-time pay for all staff members. Some departments needed more support. We are looking at redeployment internally to support. As an example, our quality assurance practices, we have redeployed a few of our staff to ensure that enhanced quality assurance practices are adhered to and followed regularly and frequently. Uncertainty has been a guarantee amid the pandemic. Smithaw and her team are constantly adapting to new information and developments. While the fall semester has just begun, who's to say what campus could look like next semester, or even next month? That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Tosh Kimmel, Emily Kunkel, and McGill Webb. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Kat Johnson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>